Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It is great to have you here. This is a place where we're working on bridging literacy research into practice. The podcast is growing every single week, which is a great indicator to me that teachers are eager to learn more about how to help their readers. So if you have a second, please leave us a review on wherever you're getting this podcast at. It just takes a second, and that's a great way to help support the show Uh, Reviews and downloads are really the two ways that this podcast gets spread to other listeners, and I would appreciate you doing that for us. Along with that, if you do leave us a review, make sure to do a screenshot of it and email it to teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. I've got a sticker that I would love to send you that says Teaching Literacy Podcast on it. It has our logo. They are great. They are sticky, like you would expect stickers to be. Um, So feel free to do that, and that would be a great way to help support what we're doing here. So let's get to today's episode. Does what we do in oral reading fluency transfer to silent reading? That might not be a question that you've thought much about. I know I certainly hadn't before I was introduced to today's topic. Oral reading fluency is a major milestone on the way to building a successful reader, but most authentic reading in the world is done silently. So how does oral reading fluency relate to silent reading fluency, and what do each of those mean for comprehension? My guest today recently completed a study that investigated those questions. Her name is Dr. Emily Hayden, and she is an assistant professor in the School of Education at Iowa State University. We have an excellent conversation about a recent study she conducted investigating comprehension-based silent reading rate in second and fourth graders. We discussed how oral reading transfers to silent reading, the inverse relationship between silent reading rate and comprehension on nape-like passages, and differences between reading narrative and informational passages. It's a great interview with lots of takeaways for any classroom teacher. After that, stick around for my two cents on the conversation. Dr. Emily Hayden, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very glad to have you on the show. I think the topic today is very important because we're talking about uh, comprehension-based silent reading rate and some of the differences between silent reading and oral reading fluency. So before we get into the study, can you explain to us some differences between oral reading fluency and silent reading as modes of reading and, and why that matters? Sure, sure. And there are a lot of differences. Um, So oral reading fluency, that's a way that we um, rely on quite heavily through the elementary years uh, to kind of assess our our students' rate. Um, And there have been a lot of uh, great correlations between oral reading fluency rates and comprehension. And so that's why we do that. And and that's really important. During oral reading, um, students have opportunities to get pretty much immediate feedback. So a teacher who's listening to a student read orally. Um, generally, we, you know, as far as the assessments, we do one-minute probes, so it's pretty quick, but teachers can kind of get an idea right away 
not only where um, words, pronunciation and, and rate is kind of breaking down, but then also if teachers um, do any kind of asking questions afterwards, any kind of really informal comprehension probe, they can, they can see in real time uh, where comprehension might be breaking down, what uh, background knowledge is not there that they can then provide, um, as well as giving um, feedback on how to improve rate and, and you know, smoothness of reading and that kind of thing. So it's a really nice, oral reading provides a really nice real-time assessment tool for teachers. Um, and then once we switch to silent reading fluency, which becomes more and more privileged once kids get into upper elementary and middle school grades and beyond, um, we, we don't have that kind of immediate feedback and that, that right now opportunity, that real-time opportunity to uh, scaffold kids' development of their rate and then see where comprehension is working and where, where we need help. So we, so we lose that kind of real-time um, uh, factor. And, and we sort of assume that, that um, all the work we do with oral reading fluency in elementary grades and the correlation with comprehension, that that's going to um, automatically transfer to kids being able to comprehend text they read silently. And what we're, what we're seeing, not only in, in the research I'm involved in, but you know, in test results, I think, is that, is, is that that's not really happening automatically for a lot of kids. So there's been work on comprehension-based silent reading rate that I, I kind of see it as a way of trying to bridge those trade-offs between oral reading fluency and, and then silent reading fluency. So can you give us a summary of previous findings around comprehension-based silent reading rate, or CBSRR? Right, right. S sure. And um, it's kind of an area where uh, there, there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of research. So there's, there's research um, on, uh, you know, we have oral reading fluency norms. So we have, you know, the Hasbrook and Tyndall have provided those norms that most school districts, every school district I've been involved in, um, used to set, you know, what oral reading rate should kids be attaining at what grade level. And then there are silent reading fluency norms, um, the, the original norming uh, that, that look at both rate and comprehension. So one difference is that with oral reading fluency norms, there wasn't a comprehension measure as well. So when Hasbrook and Tyndall developed those norms, they really were just looking at words per minute, and they didn't have any kind of comprehension measure incorporated. Um, the silent reading fluency norms, there was a comprehension measure incorporated, although it it's, was quite a bit different than what we uh, look at for comprehension on, on assessment situations. So in 1960, uh, Taylor, Cole, and Petty established the first um, silent reading fluency norms, and they um, included, so not only reading silently, and they were using eye tracking devices to, to get the rate, but they also had a comprehension measure. It was, it was very brief and it was, it was very literal, true-false questions. But they had something, at least. Um, so that's kind of the original norming group, 1960, is when that, that data was collected and then it came out in 65. And then in the 2000s, um, Svigtig and colleagues, big group, including uh, my co-author, Freddie Hebert, um, reevaluated those norms. They used the same uh, passages that the 1960 study did um, and, and the same comprehension questions and um, found that uh, since 1960, and these, this data, Spictig was collected in 2011, the article was 2016, um, we've, we've seen a um, drop in rate. So um, I'm trying to find exactly, I want to say it's like about 23 words per minute overall in grades. And they did 
uh, while the 1960 study did every grade, first grade through college, Spictig did two, four, six, eight, 10, 11, 12. But across grades, they saw uh, 23 um, words per minute drop uh, from those 1960 norms. So we, so our norms for silent reading fluency, which includes a measure of comprehension, those have dropped a little bit. So um, that's one thing we have to go on. And then um, there really, there have been studies that my co-author Freddie Hebert has been involved in looking at, kind of sussing out what's, what's going on here um, when kids read silently. Um, sort of expanding the comprehension measure because as I said, that comprehension measure that was in those original norms was true-false questions, very literal. So it didn't have any interpretive or evaluative inferential. Um, and so uh, Freddie Hebert and, and my other co-author Guy Trainin, so at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, uh, along with Kathy Wilson, Dr. Kathy Wilson, who's emeritus now from UNL, um, they did several studies over the um, 2000s to um, kind of expand the comprehension measure. So make the comprehension measure that goes with it look a little bit more like what kids are asked on tests. So uh, multi multiple choice, inferential, as well as literal, literal questions. Um, and then also dividing up text and putting comprehension measures at different points within the text to see, to see if we can figure out where in a test length text is comprehension breaking down. So that's, that's really the work that's been done. And as I said, a lot of it has been done by my two co-authors, um, Freddie Hebert and, and Guy Trainin. Um, so that's, that's sort of the background that's what we're coming. There isn't a whole lot. Um, and we clearly, you know, need to, maybe, maybe we can do more norming work also on silent reading plus comprehension norms. I appreciate you sharing those those comments, especially the work with uh, Freddie Hebert and Guy Trainin. And then the, the next question I'm going to ask as a practitioner, I find this incredibly interesting about how uh, comprehension based silent reading rates vary across text length and across you know, multiple texts like you, you know, you might see on an end of year test where there's one text and then another. Can you describe how that comprehension based silent reading rate varies across those? Sure. Uh, well, what, what, and that's um, what we looked at in this paper you and I are discussing mm -hmm. today. Um, but before that, um, the, the work with um, Dr. Hebert and Dr. Train and, and Dr. Wilson uh, was really starting to look at that and to divide up. Uh, so they'd have a um, uh, right away put together passages for kids to read that look more like what we actually ask kids to read on text, uh, on test, excuse me. So longer grade level using the Lexile system, and then multiple choice questions. Um, and what they did with that, so for example, um, in, the, in the 2010 study that Hubert Wilson and Train did, they had um, just fourth graders reading 1,000 word long passages, which is um, similar to what NAEP testing does. NAEP says that their range in terms of number of words for a test passage is 200 to 800, but then when, uh, when Freddie went back and looked at Passages on the NAEP that have been released, they were they average about 900, eight, close to, closer to 900. So this is thousand-word passages divided into five sections and after or text positions is what we call them. And after at the end of each of those, uh, four comprehension questions that were multiple choice. And kids had to answer those comprehension questions before they could go on. They couldn't do lookbacks. So sometimes in testing situations you can, and sometimes you can't. So that's a variable. But what they found was that. Um, as kids move through those sections, they speed up and generally comprehension goes down. 
so kids are able to maintain, and in our study uh, with second and fourth graders, they're able to maintain uh, an um, acceptable level of comprehension through the first half of the passage of that length. But the, the third and the fourth position, they speed way up and comprehension goes down. And what they found in that original 2010 study was that um, the students that had the highest comprehension um, maintained a, a pretty level rate across the entire passage. But, it, but that's a pretty small group that does that. Most kids will speed up kind of to get through it, or maybe they realize that they're, they're, they're not comprehending it and let's just get this done. We don't know exactly what's going on. But that's a pattern that we're seeing, that kids will speed way up to reading at a rate that doesn't support comprehension. And we know that because we also measure comprehension and it drops below 50% in that second grade. So as educators, we should be very concerned with being able to support students' silent reading because that's, that's the mode of reading that, you know, when, when, when I'm an adult, as you're an adult, most of the reading we do is silent. And certainly the extended reading we do is silent. And, but if, if nothing else, what we're talking about today matters because high stakes testing is a very real thing for educators everywhere. And so if a student um, reading rate and comprehension rate are fluctuating quite widely across sets of passages and, and how, how long, you know, the length of the passages and the, the number of passages, that's something as educators that we need to be, you know, thinking about so we can help our students, you know, perform to their truest and, and best ability. With that, let's, let's get into the study. Can you tell us what were the goals of the study you conducted and then uh, participants and measures? Just give us an overall framing of what you conducted. Sure. Well, uh, as I said, we wanted to um, get more information about um, where this breakdown in comprehension was happening because um, we knew by the end of passages that, that kids were um, comprehending um, at rates that would not be acceptable. So we set, we set our... Um, acceptable comprehension level on this in this study at 50%, which for a classroom assessment and a standardized assessment, 50% comprehension would not be enough, right? But um, we wanted, we really wanted to um, think about the types of questions we were asking. So again, in that original 1960 study that set the silent reading fluency norms and that had the oral, had the comprehension measure, excuse me, um, they set their acceptable comprehension level at 70%, but again, those were just literal true-false questions. We were asking a little bit harder questions, so we, we set that a little bit lower to see what would happen. So we looked at, and we also, another difference is we also looked at both second graders and fourth graders, and so this is one of the first studies to include second graders. Generally, these um, studies of um, comprehension-based silent reading start at fourth grade. But we included second graders for a couple of reasons. And one is that, that maybe is most familiar to classroom teachers is that stuff that's happening in a lot of states around third grade retention, right? Where kids have to, at the end of third grade, um, be on grade level or there are some serious consequences that happen. Um, so it makes sense to start thinking now about what can we do in second grade to help students start to develop those silent reading fluency um, uh, and comprehension skills that they're going to need to be able to prove that they are reading on grade level by third grade. So they don't get into these really serious un unhappy consequences. But some other studies have looked at second graders as well. And, and in that uh, Spictig study, when she and Freddie and several others reevaluated those 1960 norms, um, they found that second graders, they also looked at second and fourth graders, 
Um, second graders were pretty good at this silent reading plus comprehension um, as far as uh, doing what second graders in 1960 were doing, but it was around fourth grade that, that we started to see lower uh, silent reading fluency and comprehension rates. So something's happening between second and fourth grade, and so we wanted to see if we could suss that out a little bit more. So we had second graders and fourth graders. We also had both narrative and informational texts, and every participant read both a narrative and an informational text. Uh, because there's research, a lot of research, and then just kind of a lot of common knowledge among teachers, and, and I was a teacher for many years as well, that narrative is a little easier for kids to engage with and comprehend. And, and I know your, uh, your previous, uh, I was listening to your wonderful podcast uh, sections with um, Dr. Ray Reitzel, and he was talking about that as well. Um, there's a lot going on with informational text. It's more vocabulary and, and varied structures, and it's a little more challenging. So we wanted to look at, are there differences in being able to read silently and comprehend narrative text versus informational text? So I had second graders and fourth graders. They each read a narrative text on their grade level and an informational text. Um, and then we also divided up the, we, we um, had texts that were written at the appropriate lexile level for the grade level and of the length that that grade level student would encounter on a test. So for the second graders, the passages they read were 600 words total divided into four sections that were each 150 words. And then for the fourth graders, um, they, they, their two passages, one was nine, nine, 996, one was 1,000, so they were each divided into equal sections as well. Because we wanted to look at, at each section. So you read a section and then you stop. And we asked some comprehension questions. Where is that comprehension breakdown happening? So second and fourth graders, genre, narrative and informational, and then grade level text, grade level length, divided up into sections and we checked comprehension. Um, so that was the setup that we, that we went in with. Numbers, we had 63 second graders and 52 fourth graders, so it's, it's not, kind of, sign of sort of on the small side, but um, um, a decent size to do some of the kinds of analysis that we're doing. Um, so then your, your findings kind of were divided up into three sections. You had findings for grade level, findings for across genre, and then findings for text position. So mm -hmm. let's get in and, and start to look at those individually. So what were your findings across grades with your second graders and fourth graders? Yes. Well, in general, uh, second graders read, uh, sorry, sorry, fourth graders read faster. Second graders read a little more slowly, which is not surprising, right? Um, and in general, there weren't significant differences between their levels of comprehension um, between second and fourth grade. Um, for genre, both grade levels read informational text faster. Now, for fourth graders, um, there was a greater difference between how they read, how fast they read narrative and how fast they read informational. It was pretty equal um, with second graders, statistically anyway, in terms of significance. But um, in general, informational texts are read faster. Now, um, when we looked at comprehension, and I'm gonna pull up a table here um, to look at too, um, that's where it gets interesting. <laughs> because the distressing thing, and, and, there, and for me as a former teacher, there are several distressing things here, um, is that again, we set that comprehension level that we were checking at each stop at 50%, which is, which is low, 
Um, and for our, our second graders, for example, as they went through each section of the text, they sped up, they started at reading at a rate of 107 words per minute. Um, and then that increased with every section of the text, all four sections, and by the end they were reading at 131 words per minute. So like if you think of oral reading fluency rates for second graders at 50th percentile, that's somewhere around 97 words per minute. So they're reading pretty fast. Um, and their comprehension, um, by, the, by the time they got to the last passage, actually the last two sections of the passage, they were, our second graders were reading below 50, or comprehending below 50%. So they're speeding up and their comprehension's dropping below 50%, which is not, not gonna work for assessments, classroom or big, big data assessments. So that's distressing. And then I saw a similar kind of thing with fourth graders as well, um, that they started at um, reading at a, a rate of 121 words per minute and went to 145. I'm trying to remember, I have it written down here, what the Hasbrook and Tyndall rate is. Um, uh, for fourth grade, it's 127 oral reading fluency rate. So um, 127. So our fourth graders started reading at 121, a little below, but by the end they were reading 145. So faster rate than we would look for with oral reading. And their comprehension, by the time we got to the last um, text position, only two thirds of the fourth graders were comprehending narrative at that 50% comp level and only 56% were, com uh, were comprehending informational. So in both grades, we see they're speeding up and comprehension is going down. It's more dramatic for second graders, which is not surprising, but even for fourth graders, if only two thirds of your kids are making the cut, that's, that wouldn't be good enough for your class. You would really wanna look at what's going on. So, so that's, that's kind of an interesting thing and, and, and something you know, we're concerned about, and I know teachers are too, how can I help all of my students, you know, or at least more than two thirds, right? <laughs> Be able to understand what they're reading because we know as they, as they leave elementary school and go into middle school, um, schedules are different. So teachers have less time to, you know, spend individually with, with kids or even with small groups. And um, they're, they're expected to read and comprehend it on their own. So, and, and that finding that, speedy that uh you know speed increased and comprehension decreased that is as we mentioned before consistent with other studies you mm -hmm. know that have, have been done previously and so I, I know this study didn't look into causes why it's just kind of seeing what was going on but i'm sure you know you and, and dr training and dr hebert have hypotheses why do you think the student reading is increasing and then the comprehension is 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 decreasing yeah well one thing that, that we think we could do a better job of is, um, is developing a kind of framework for um, classroom instruction that starts in the early grades that help kid, helps kids develop these patterns of silent reading with comprehension. That we don't make the assumption that if we're working on oral reading fluency and, and talking through comprehension aloud with kids, that that will automatically, the kids will automatically internalize that because it seems like their kids are not automatically internalizing that. So we, we need um, some more scaffolding kinds of instruction that will help kids know that, oh, even when I'm reading it by myself, I still need to be monitoring my comprehension. So we teach kids to 
monitor. Like if do you, you know, we teach kids that if you if you're reading along and you notice that you're you're not making pictures in your head, there's not a movie running in your head of of the story. Then what do you need to do? Something's gone wrong, and you need to go back and reread, or you need to apply these comprehension strategies that we've taught. Um, and the problem seems to be that kids aren't remembering that they can do that on their own when they're reading silently. So we need some kind of framework that helps kids develop those strong uh, patterns of understanding and noticing my understanding when I'm reading by myself silently, as well as when I'm reading with my guided reading group or my teacher or whoever. Um, so that's one thing is, is that, you know, we need to pay more attention to does, does what we do in oral reading fluency automatically transfer to silent reading fluency? And, and we're seeing that for a lot of kids, it doesn't. So you also found in your study that there were nuances with the, the text complexity. And I think text complexity should be something at the forefront of teachers thinking mm -hmm. too, because that's the other, you have the reader, that's a major variable, but then the text that they're reading and what the text brings should also be a huge consideration. So tell us what you found uh, along text complexity. Yeah, well, we, we found um, it raised a lot of questions for us. <laughs> and it's sort of uh, guiding us uh, with, with work we're trying to continue, we're continuing to do. Um, so text complexity, and, and as you know, my co-author, Dr. Freddie Hebert, is, is an expert in this um, and um, designed the passages that were used for all of these studies that I've referenced her in, including this one. So. Uh, she thought very carefully about constructing the passages. Again, we wanted to construct the passages to look like things that kids will encounter on tests. Um, because it's not really fair as teachers if we don't prepare our kids for that. And I'm not an advocate of teaching to the test. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I need to, it's not also not fair of me to not think about the complexity kids are going to encounter on a test and not provide some practice with that. And then just say, okay, go do your best and good luck. You know, that's, that's not, that doesn't feel right to me as a teacher either. So, um, so she put to, Dr. Hebert put together these passages very carefully. So they're not, they're, they're on topics, both the narrative and the informational that are not, maybe not really familiar to kids. So they have a little practice in, okay, here's, here, how do you apply what you know in terms of comprehension, skill and strategy to something that you're not familiar with. Um, she wrote them, and for each grade level, as you know, there's a, a band of lexiles. You know, it's not just one number, there's a, there's a range. She wrote them kind of at the, in the lower half of that grade level range. Um, and then thought about uh, word frequency too, because the lexile system, you know, uses um, sentence length, but sentence length, but also uh, word frequency. Um, to determine lexile. So she, she, those, were, those passages were written really carefully. What we're wondering about now is, and again, this is something that I heard echoed with your interview with Dr. Reitzel and some, and some new work that, uh, that Dr. Heber is doing, is really thinking about more um, word work in, in terms of how do you use, how do you figure out a word you don't know within a text? Um, and then thinking about the, the background knowledge that's going to be needed. How do we help kids um, develop a structure that's going to help them engage with topics they don't know about? 
Um, one thing we're playing with trying in the future is playing a little bit more with that where we're at in the Lexile band. So we were like at about the 50th percentile Lexile within um, uh, a grade level range. What if we wrote passages at the 25th, you know, a little bit, he's still within the range, but a little bit easier. Or conversely, what if we wrote it at 75? Sometimes um, it seems counterintuitive, but sometimes with something that's a little bit harder, there might be more supports in the text there that would actually help boost comprehension. So um, I think it would be, I think it's important for those of us who are educators, like you, like me, and educational researchers, like me, somebody who's been in the classroom and then in the research end of it, to, to think about what kind of impact could we have with test developers as far as let's really look at the, the text that we're putting in front of kids and think about the, the word load, um, where it is in that lexile range, are there things we could play around with there? So that's, that's one thing that a uh, future direction for us. Another thing we're thinking about for classroom is uh, how could we scaffold kids self-monitoring when they're reading silently? So we stopped kids every, um, you know, we, we divided the, our, our passages into four equal length segments and we stopped them four times. What if we stopped them at, in, as a teaching intervention in a classroom? What if we stopped every, you know, what if we divided into 10%, you know, and we stopped more frequently? And what if we not only gave feedback on your comprehension, but also how fast you're reading. What if we told kids, look at this, you, you read a whole lot faster this time. And then what did you notice about your comprehension? Because what I see is that you didn't, you, you didn't quite, it seems like you didn't quite understand that as well. What do you think might be a strategy? It might be, despite years and years and years of practice on teaching kids to read more quickly with oral reading fluency, and I'm not saying that does not have a place because it does, but it might be that on something that's a little bit harder, you need to slow down. And I say that with kind of a, eh, because I know there, there's some pushback on that, but what we're seeing is that kids would speed way up and then their comprehension goes down. And, and the reason we read is to comprehend, right? If you read me all the words but you didn't understand the message, then I'm not sure reading really happened there because the, reading, the reason we read is to understand. And that's how kids will be tested too. Absolutely. So let's, let's try and connect this into practice. So, uh, you know, our audience on the podcast is primarily educators. So what would you recommend for second and fourth grade teachers or really anywhere in those, you know, upper and middle elementary grades about how to support the silent based comprehension reading rate of their students across genre and, and text position? Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. Well, and, and we know that, um, Common Core um, asked us to use a whole lot more informational text at younger grades, and that and that's one thing. And I and I know, uh, just as your other guests have said, that there um, that informational text is is uh, more complex in a lot of ways than narrative text. But again, and I'm not for teaching to the test, but again, we're doing our students a disservice if we don't start teaching right away, second grade in our case, how to grapple with informational text. Uh, how do you make sense of that? We know pretty well how to make sense of story um, because we, we come to school with stories, you know, in general, all of us, uh, regardless of our cultural background, have, have heard stories our, our whole lives and we sort of know how stories go. 
we need to do um, more work in helping kids negotiate, navigate informational text, make sense of informational text um, from, from right away. I mean, I would say there are ways you can do that at kindergarten even. I'm not advocating testing that necessarily there, but so informational text. Um, words, how to, um, first of all, you know, I really liked uh, one of your other guests talking about, uh, and you and I were talking about, um, teachers really looking at the challenges the text they have will put, will place upon their students and thinking about qualitatively analyzing that. So we have Lexiles, you know, that guide our instruction at every grade level, um, but that really only tells you that someone reading at this level could read all these words. It doesn't really give you information about will they be able to understand it. So I think as teachers, we need to uh, really think about who are the kids in front of me that I'm going to put this text in front of. And in this text, what are the, uh, are there funny structures here that might get my kids mixed up? Like, is this a, um, what do I want to say? Is this like a persuasive text? for example, where um, the author is trying to convince you of something um, and maybe you agree and maybe you don't, you know, could we talk about that? Th that in particular, and when you think about, you know, to make a, a connection outside literacy, the next generation science standards that have literacy components, they're looking right away at can kids um, uh, interpret an argument and maybe write their own arguments, you know, that's, what are, you, what are your claims and what are your facts? I think we could do some of that. And there is a little bit of research with kids as young as first grade on um, picking a claim and then, and then um, supporting it with your facts. So looking at texts we're putting in front of kids and saying, what are the things that are tricky? What are the words that are tricky? We're pretty good at that, I think. Um, but also, how about the structure? Am I going to need to teach kids that this is a persuasive structure? And you may agree with the author, or in some cases you may not, and we could talk about that. Um, what are the knowledge demands? So for all of my students, what uh, background knowledge, prior knowledge do they need for this? And if they don't have it, or if I'm halfway through the lesson and I realize they don't have it, what am I going to do? Um, so I, I, and I know those are huge things. Um, but I think really thinking more about informational text, even though we saw, you know, comprehension drops off, drop offs in narrative text as well. But thinking about what kids will encounter on, in testing situations, how to navigate informational text, and then thinking as teachers, not only about the Lexile, but also look at it with your, with your trained eye and, and think about your students and what here is going to be tricky, what can I do? And then how can I help kids make the transfer that, okay, we did this in class together, you can do this all by yourself when you read by yourself too. And how, what are ways you might do that? Maybe having conversations about that, having lists up on the wall and all kinds of things. Here are the things you do in your head when you're reading. I think we, we need to do a lot more work on, on unpacking the text and helping our kids unpack the text and knowing that they can do that on their own. I, I love what you said. Uh, I think I think the episode you're referring to was episode two with John Z. Strong about text right. complexity. And that was um, such an, and so it's interesting to kind of tie what you're talking about here today. Um, you know, the episodes I had with Ray Reitzel with being able to construct meaning from a text and then John Z. Strong with being able to, um, you know, what does the text bring to the readers? You know, what does the text bring to this interaction between the reader and the text? Um, and then also there's an episode with Emily Phillips Galloway that is, 
right along this the same lines of there's academic language skills that students need to have and those can be at the word level or the sentence level or at, at the text level and all of those you know certainly influence whether the student is understanding what they're reading or, or if they or whether they don't and so it is such big i mean these are such big things to grapple with of how do you help you know a, a student do it and i i think sometimes teachers have to just pick how can i pick one area how can i help my students metacognitively approach this you know whether it's text structure whether it's inferring meanings from unknown words whether it's you know activating their background knowledge and because it all seems to be metacognitive don't you know don't you think that there's this act, aspect of being able to reflect on or understand what they're understanding or not understanding because that's that's right. the, that's the great what great readers do right is is they sort of it's a very fluid it's a very fluid process um, but there has to be metacognition um, right and I think we do a good job of, of doing that, helping kids do that, you know, with things they read aloud in class or we read as a group. But then it's, you know, you can do this by yourself inside your head, too. You've got to be paying attention then, too. And just speeding up is not going to work. <laughs> I think that's one thing we can say for sure from our study. Just reading faster is not going to help you. So let's give them some other, you know, some other tools that they can use to, yes. you know, to help attack, tackle those texts. So Dr. Emily Hayden, what do you think it takes to be a good teacher? Well, I, I love this question because another area I'm really interested in as a former classroom teacher for many years myself is, um, is teacher agency and, and critical reflection. So what I think it means to be a good teacher is you and as, as many, many people before me and after me will say, you need to get to know your students. Um, because once you know your students, um, if you can combine that with reflecting on your practice, then you can um, really make a difference in your students' learning. Um, so I think that uh, sometimes, and I work with undergraduate, I'm in undergraduate teacher preparation right now, and I, I, I always try to say to my teacher candidates, you know, you can go into class uh, with a perfect lesson planned and it will almost never go exactly the way you planned it and that does not mean you're a bad teacher what makes you a good teacher is noticing that noticing that there's a little pocket of kids over here that I don't think they got it and then thinking okay what am I going to do tomorrow to change my approach so that so that all of my students understand what it is what my objectives are so that all my students are able to meet the objective and, and I think that makes a good teacher. So you know your students and you watch your students and you're willing to reflect on your practice and, and adapt to meet the needs of your students. And if you're not, you know, if you're doing file drawer teaching, you know, where you, it's week three, so we're doing this, and you're not taking into account the kids that are, that are not with you, then I, I would be really concerned about a teacher like that. So sometimes in my undergraduates, the ones I'm concerned about are the ones that are very, that are very hard on themselves. They go in with the lesson. It didn't go the way they planned. They feel like they're, they're not a good teacher. It's their fault. No, that's no. The ability, being a good teacher means that you notice that and then you, do, you can do something different. And that helps build agency as a teacher too. Whereas, you know, it's a terrible situation. And I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but you have something happen in the classroom and you feel like you can't do anything to, to impact that. That's where we don't want teachers to be. Um, you know, there, there's always something you can do, especially if you're noticing your students' responses and then thinking about your approach. 
um, being critically reflective, being adaptive. So get to know your kids and pay attention to um, their learning and be willing to change things in your approach when, when needed. I think that makes a really strong teacher and someone I would want to be a teacher for my children and, and beyond. Dr. Emily Hayden, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great big thank you to Dr. Hayden for joining us on the show today. I have two takeaways from our conversation that I want to talk about. The first one is around the concept of comprehension-based silent reading rate. Something to note is that the passages in this study were only between 150 and 250 words. So we're not talking about super long passages here. Yet as students progress through the passage, their rate of reading increased while their comprehension decreased. That is a major finding and should be very concerning for us as literacy educators. We know from research that fluency serves as a bridge to comprehension. And so in a similar way, I think this concept of a comprehension-based silent reading rate helps us think about that bridge between fluency and comprehension. In other words, what is a rate of silent reading that can sustain comprehension? In addition to robust fluency support, our students need to have robust comprehension support. So perhaps to stave off this increasing rate phenomena, students could use instruction around how to self-monitor. So that way when students could be more apt to notice when their comprehension is breaking down and they can address it. You know, or perhaps they need assistance in reading stamina or the ability to persist through text. Breaking down instruction, which is what we do so often as literacy educators, when we break down our instruction into bite-sized pieces for students, we can help them learn how to read. And that's an important part to helping our students read. But perhaps we need to find ways to have a gradual release from those bite-sized pieces, those very small, short um chunks of literacy instruction that we do and sort of gradually release those into extended reading uh, within text for students. The key with that though is, is to find ways to support student reading in these longer texts rather than just releasing them and saying go and read. We need to find ways to support them. So I'm not sure I have big major answers here, but what I do know is that we want our students to be able to sustain their comprehension across complex, challenging texts for an extended period of time. And if, as educators, we can have that framework in our mind, we can provide ways, we can, we can brainstorm and, with our expertise, help find ways to support our students in, in doing that in their own development into expert readers. The second thing I wanted to talk about uh, is about, again, comprehension-based silent reading rate. If this is a topic that interests you, you really need to check out the book by Dr. Freddie Hebert called Teaching Stamina and Silent Reading in the Digital Global Age. It was published in 2015, and it's available for free, for free, folks. You can get it for free on her website at textproject.org. I'll link to it in the show notes. I was first introduced to the concept of comprehension-based silent reading rate when I read that book probably around a year and a half ago. 
and it really shifted the way I taught reading in my classroom. When I read that book, I realized that I had way too much oral fluency practice in my classroom and not enough comprehension support and certainly not enough extended comprehension, like extended reading comprehension support. Plus, on top of that, the comprehension instruction I did have, I don't think really provided enough support to those students who needed it most. So once I read that, I adjusted my instruction. I won't say it was a complete overhaul, but it was a lot of tweaks. It was a series of tweaks that I was able to do to, to help sort of shift this from thinking of, I'm going to have lots of oral reading in my classroom into how can I make this with more silent reading in my classroom, but silent reading that's still supported. So I changed a lot of the choral readings of texts to repeated silent readings, and I worked ways to figure out how I could support students when they were reading silently. And I also figured out ways that I could provide oral reading support for my students who were disfluent. And it, it was a series of, of tweaks and changes, and it's, it's still, you know, it evolves, because as teachers we continue to evolve. Um, but I'll be honest, it's been more of a challenge to teach in this way, to try and support silent reading, fluency, and comprehension more. But I do feel on balance that it has helped my students' comprehension uh, I can only speak to my experience on this one, but I can definitely say that if comprehension-based silent reading rate is a topic that interests you, then Dr. Hebert's book, Teaching Stamina and Silent Reading in the Digital Global Age, is definitely one that you should check out. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.